You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. That was really good. And everybody at home watching online right now, also our church and church family right now, people gathering all over the world, tuning in, and we're really glad you're here with us. We are in our fourth week on this tip of the iceberg, and today we want to ask a really, really hard but important question in the midst of all this. Ready? What do I do if my iceberg moments have hurt someone else? And here's what I mean. So if you're visiting us, you're tuning in for the first time, either online or here live, what happened in the iceberg moments is, right, you only see a little bit of it, but something happened You got angry, your pride got in the way, something greedy happened, maybe a lustful moment, something happened and the tip of it showed, but there's something bigger going on under the surface. But when that tip showed, what do I do now? Because now there's brokenness between me and someone else. And if it's somebody I love dearly, my spouse, my children, my parents, whatever it is, or it might be somebody I don't care about, what does God want for me? Now, I tend to be what we would call traditionally, typically call a preacher. I tend to take something at God's word and, and try to hit on it and convict you and move you. And I want to do that today, but I'm going to be a little bit more professorial today. I'm going to give a lot of content. And here's the reality. We could spend four to six weeks on this and barely scratch the surface and not necessarily get as far as we need to go. So I'm going to do a little bit of preaching. I'm going to do a lot of teaching. And here's my hope and prayer is that before the end of this message, you will be so moved that you respond. So what we're going to do is invite God into this moment at home here and right now, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to do something in us that we weren't even planning on doing when we showed up today. Let's pray. God, we need you. We need you more than we know. You've been um, convicting me all week about this message. You've been stirring in me all week about the need for this message. So God, help me right now. Help us right now. Give me your words to speak, Father. But right now, I pray for every man and woman and child listening in this room and at home. I pray you would put a name on our hearts, put a name on our minds of a person that we need to be reconciled to. Father, as you give us that name, give us wisdom to know what to do next. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you know that there's a difference between a cow and a buffalo? Now, both taste great. One is less filling. But if you've ever had a chance to eat buffalo or bison burger, I highly recommend it. Here's what's interesting about the differences between the two. If a storm is coming, did you know that a cow will see the storm and run away from it? Now, what happens when a cow runs away from the storm is it actually ends up in the storm longer than it needed to be. Because in its effort to get out of it, It's following the storm. Can a cow ever outrun a storm? No. But a bison or a buffalo, they will actually do the opposite. They'll gather together when they see the storm is coming. And I used to live in Colorado. They would actually run towards the storm, thereby actually shrinking the amount of time, the amount of time that they're in the storm. Because as they go towards the storm, the storm eventually goes over them and past them. And I think that's the root of what we are talking about today is it relates to these iceberg moments in reconciling. You can run away from the problem and it's just going to keep chasing you and following you for the rest of your life. Or you can run right towards it and deal with it. Years ago, I was being mentored by another pastor named Bob Russell, pastor of a large, large church in the United States. And he said to this group of small, this small group of pastors, he said, listen, if you have to eat a frog, better start early. 
Let that sink in for a minute. And I thought to myself, I don't get it. Until I started kicking around, I went, oh. Because see, most of us put it off, put it off, put it off, put it off. Then there it is, the end of the day. You still got to eat it before you go to bed. But now you've waited to the end of the day when you're tired and you're stressed and you have no margin left. And now you got to eat the frog anyway. You're going to have to eat the frog. You might as well get started. So with that idea in mind, aren't you glad you came to Kingsway? Matthew chapter 5. Here's what Jesus says about the issue. Matthew 5. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Now, stop for a second. You have to put yourself not in an America, New Testament context, but in an Old Testament Hebrew context of 2,000 years ago. So there was Jerusalem, the big temple in Jerusalem, and then outside of Jerusalem, these smaller towns like Galilee, or that'd be an area, Nazareth, they would have smaller synagogues that served that area or that town. And the whole idea, a lot of times, when you got to make a sacrifice, you got to come all the way to Jerusalem. So now if you were 35 miles away, say in Nazareth or whatever it is, and you want to make an offering, it doesn't say which offering. There are different kind of offerings that the Hebrew people had. They had to overcome sin, maybe, uh, with, with a sacrifice. They, there were gift offerings and praise offerings and thank offerings. It was a chance to come into worship of God and offer some of what he has given you back to him and say, God, thank you. And Jesus says, if you come all the way to the temple and you get there, and you realize, I'm here to thank God or worship God or maybe overcome sin, but I just remembered all the way back in Nazareth, this person, I've got a problem with them. Jesus says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. And then he says in the next verse, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Well, here's the problem. There's no layaway plan at the altar. There's no storage or holding area where if it dawns on you, So now you've traveled 35 miles by foot, if you're rich, by donkey, all the way to Jerusalem. When it dawns on you, there was business back home you needed to take care of before you can worship God. And now you have to leave this, travel all the way home, find the person, be reconciled to them, then come all the way back to the temple to actually do your business with God. So what is the first thing we realize of what Jesus says? And that is this, we have to feel the urgency of the moment. Your brokenness between what you are experiencing with you and someone else is very serious. Don't look at it as your cholesterol that you've got 10 years to try to get under control before it really is a problem. Look at this as a heart attack that is gonna take you out right now. And there is the difference. So what Jesus says Leave your gift in front of the altar. That should say Matthew 5, 24. That's just a typo there. Leave your gift in front of the altar. He's trying to say, take this extremely seriously. Okay, real quick. There's a frog that God is putting in your mind. Is there a hard conversation that you are avoiding? Is there a person in the world that you have hurt or offended that you are not dealing with? Remember the context of Matthew 5, 23 and 24 is if you're there to worship and you realize your brother or sister has something against you. It doesn't say if they're right. It doesn't say um, you've tried and it failed. It says if you're there and you realize somebody has something against you, you've never dealt with it, leave everything and go deal with it. 
I was kind of shocked. I thought at this point, I'm not gone far enough yet, but I kind of thought at this point we might have five or 10 people get up and walk out and not for the normal reasons, but just kidding, just kidding. But because maybe God is like, wow, I need to go do it. And by the way, if you need to, I support you. But let's keep going. Let me give you some wisdom so before you just walk out and have a conversation with somebody, maybe you have some tools to know what to do when you get there in the moment. Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, he's building on this. In verse 25, he says this, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. So this word neighbor is an important word biblically because Jesus says when he's approached, what are the two greatest commandments? Number one, love God, and then number two, love others. He doesn't exactly say love others if they're in the church. Love others if they're in your family. Love others if, you know, they're your boss and it benefits you. No, he says love everybody. In fact, Jesus goes so far, he's so radical, he says love your enemies. Pray for them. Bless them. And in doing this, you'll be like your heavenly father. So who is my neighbor? Do you know Jesus has actually asked that question too? In fact, it's a religious man who wants to get out of doing the thing that God has called him to do. So he says, well, Jesus, you tell me to love my neighbor in the same way I love myself, but who's my neighbor? And it even says in Luke, he wants to get out of it. So Jesus says, here you go, it's an illustration. There's a guy, he gets beat up, he's wounded and hurt by the world, and he's left on the side of the road. And the first person to walk by is the religious elite. And when he sees him, he goes to the other side of the road and avoids him. Maybe he's too busy. And the next person comes up, he's also a servant in the temple, and he sees him, goes the other side of the road, ignores him, and keeps going on his way. But the next person to come up, and this is radical in the story, you need to get this one, the next person to come up is a Samaritan. See, you hear that story, you've heard this before. How many times have you watched ESPN or Fox Sports or Fox News or CNN, and you've heard them reference Good Samaritan? Somebody does something nice, they show you a video, they're like, oh, Good Samaritan. They're talking about a story that Jesus made up. That's the impact that Jesus has had on our culture. But what's crazy is we take it out of context all the time. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. They hated each other because of racial barriers. Who is it when you see them on TV? Who is it when you're driving on the road and you're having that secret conversation in your head, that one out loud that you're having that nobody else is in the car? Who is it you're avoiding because you're judging them? Are they black? Are they white? Are they Muslim? Are they Middle Eastern? Are they a Democrat? A Republican? Are they somebody who struggles with these sin issues? Are they somebody who struggles with these sin issues? Are they alcoholics? Are they in the LGBTQ community? Who is it when their name, their thing comes up, you start having a conversation with somebody who's not there? You know what I'm talking about? And then when you get with your friends and your family who agree with you on that thing, you both start to have a conversation about the person who's not there. That's the context of Jesus' illustration about the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan had every reason to hate that Jew because they hated each other and they treated each other with terrible evil. Jesus says, that Samaritan saw the man in need, he met the man's need, he took him in, he cared for him, he said to the hotel manager, you take care of him, my next time I come through town, whatever it costs, I'll pay you what it costs. And then Jesus looks at the man and he says, so tell me, who was the neighbor? 
So clearly the Samaritan. And that, that blows everybody's mind. Yeah, it sounds great, Jesus, but nobody actually does that. Jesus says, yeah, you go do the same. That's your neighbor. Wherever the need is, that's your neighbor. That's your neighbor. Now, this is crucial, by the way, where we're going to go in two weeks, what I need to talk to you all about. But we start our elephants of the church in the very first message, talk about racism as part of it. But let's get back to today's message. So we got this name in our head, this name in our heart. And, and Paul says, speak, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. In other words, a conversation is going to take place. And the conversation is about being honest honest about how I'm hurt, honest about how I'm offended, honest about what you did to me, honest about my sins, honest about what my part is in this, honesty all across the board. And here's a little tidbit for you. Your opinion is not the truth. Your experience might be a part of the truth, but your opinion in and of itself is not the truth, which might mean you have something to learn if you speak honestly and listen honestly to what somebody else has to say. And he says, for we are all members of one body. It's a whole sermon in and of itself. But in John chapter 17, Jesus prays his last prayer with his disciples. And he says this, Father, now I'm praying for future disciples. That's us. And he says, may they be one as we are one. You and me and I in them. May they come to complete unity so that the world may know that I am Lord. Okay, so what Jesus just says in his last prayers, I'm about to give up my life, but God, use this, use my life as a gift so that, Father, the entire world may come to unity. There's supposed to be something different about you and me as believers in Jesus Christ. We're not supposed to act like the world acts and think like the world thinks. We're supposed to look at problems differently. We're supposed to look at conflict differently. We're supposed to look at relationships differently. Out there, there's backbiting and devouring and factions and there's all kinds of brokenness and devouring and undercutting and lying and deception. But in here, not us. Please, not us. He goes on. Notice this, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Notice what he didn't say, it's a sin to be angry. If somebody walks up and punches you in the face, does it make you angry? Come on now. That doesn't make you a sinner, it makes you human. And remember, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. At what age did you learn that was a lie? I think what our parents, at least, I don't know when my parents learned, but I think when my parents taught me that phrase, they were just trying to say, you know, be a duck. You ever heard the phrase, be a duck? And the same way that water just rolls off the back of a duck, just be a duck, just let comments roll off, but it doesn't work that easy, does it? I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some comments people make about you, you're like, yeah, whatever. But there are other ones people make, and it's like that arrow they shot just found the one hole in the armor and pierced your heart. And Paul doesn't say, be a duck. Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. And that's critical because when somebody wounds you, your natural response is to what? Hit back. And you might not actually hit back, though some of you might, but you're gonna use words. You're gonna use actions that make them suffer for what you believe is the suffering they've caused towards you, and that's not healthy. It's not Christ-honoring. It's not biblical. So, he goes on, Paul says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And this is critical. I'm gonna give you two pieces of wisdom as it relates to that very part. In other words, take the urgency so seriously 
that before the sun goes down, you respond in urgency. You may not reconcile before the sun goes down. And there are Christians who disagree with me on this. That's fine. They could be wrong. They've never called me to talk about it. I'm just joking. But sometimes when I'm having um, an issue with, between my wife and I, sometimes if we push it to one or two or three in the morning, we don't make any progress. Because I'm tired and she's tired. Sometimes we have to look at each other and say, I love you. We're not done working through this yet. We have more to talk about, but my position towards you is love. So in that regard, the sun did not go down on our anger. Sometimes it takes me saying, I'm probably more wrong than I know. If you'll just give me tonight, maybe tomorrow, to think about it, to process it, I'll talk to you. I need time to seek the Lord and discover all the ways that I'm probably wrong. There's nothing bad about that. But I haven't let the sun go down. I'm not having a secret conversation in my head. You ever have that? You walk to the other part of the house or you whatever, you're in your car and you're going in your mind over the conversation. And if I could just say whatever I want, I'd tell you and here's what you don't know and you're not paying attention to and they're not even in the room. Satan's eating your lunch. Don't give the devil a foothold. All of the stuff that came before this is how we give the devil a foothold. We keep our anger and our bitterness inside us. We don't speak the truth in love. We don't have conversations. We don't do it immediately. So it builds and it builds and it builds. And then I see you in a grocery store or I see you in a restaurant and I avoid you because I think to myself, oh, you don't even know. You got another thing coming. And that what would happen if I were to just sit down and say, you're so important to me. I'm hurt. I'm mad. I'm frustrated. I love you. I don't know how to work through this, but this isn't okay. So how do I do that? Let's imagine you actually get to the table and you start to have a conversation. Your very first step is this. Own whatever is yours. Let's say you're 2% of the problem because in our minds, that's all we ever are. But let's just say it's true. You gotta own your 2% 100%. And you got to do it first. Does that make sense? Let me give a terrible illustration, but boy, is it powerful. One of the things that I like to do is when I'm preparing for a sermon, I want to sit under the Lord in humility. So I try to go find other pastors and preachers who taught on the text or on a subject and just sit under them and then let the Holy Spirit convict me and move me and stir in me and then try to respond to that before I get up here. I don't always do it right. I'm not trying to say I always nail it. I don't, but I want to sit submissively under the Lord's word so that I could do whatever God is prompting me to do so that I could stand up here with any kind of authority saying, look, I get it, it's hard, or I've done this and I've succeeded in it in these ways, whatever it is. And I listened to a sermon on this subject. It was good. God did a great job. You should have heard him preaching. He'd be way better at it than me. But he did like a four-part series. I thought, good, I'm giving it one sermon. God help. And he used this illustration. And I, so I don't know the players in the game. But he said this. There was a man at his church who came to him. And he grew up in a home with an alcoholic father. And his dad was a mean drunk. You know, there's different kinds of alcoholics. And his dad would beat the family. And he had this one hiding spot where he would get away. And one day his dad found his hiding spot. And he beat him for hiding. And he just kept beating him from there on. And he had this terrible hatred and bitterness towards his dad. And he let everybody know throughout his life. He would gossip and slander and tear down his dad 
to other people. But one day, somebody was teaching on this text, and he got convicted. And so he decided he wanted to do something about it, and he went to the pastor. He's like, what do I do? And he said, whatever percent is yours, own it 100%. So the man finally decided to go to his dad. He went to his dad, and he didn't lead with, Dad, and I'm mad at you, and you did these things. He led with, Dad, I need to apologize. Because over the last whatever years, I've been angry at you. I've hated you in my heart. I've cursed you in my mind. I've tore you down to others. I've slandered and gossiped you. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And his dad began to weep. And say, son, I'm so sorry for everything I ever did to you. Now, was it over at that point? Are they reconciled? There's a lot of conversation that needs to take place. But this pastor that I was listening to said, I wonder what would have been different had he gone in and started with all the things his daddy did wrong instead of starting with, here's how I sinned in this situation, dad. See, if you want to be reconciled to another person the way Jesus is telling us, you're going to have to own your stuff. Whatever is yours. Ken Sandy has this great quote from The Peacemaker. It says this, and I don't see the quote on my slide, so I'm gonna read it. It says this. Even if you did not start the dispute, your lack of understanding, your careless words, your impatience or failure to respond in a loving manner may have aggravated the situation. When this happens, it is easy to behave as though the other person sins more than cancel yours, which leaves you with a self-righteous attitude that can retard forgiveness. The best way to overcome this tendency is to prayerfully examine your role in the conflict and then write down everything you've done or failed to do that may have been a factor. Is anybody else not looking forward to having a hard conversation today? Well, let me give you one more piece of advice. Number three. Be full of mercy and grace. Whatever is yours, be full of mercy and grace. Did you know there's a difference between mercy and grace? We often use them together interchangeably. They're not interchangeable. Without doing an entire sermon on this, uh, grace would be like a top-level um, word, and underneath grace would be mercy, along with other things like forgiveness and love and kindness and compassion, so there are parts of mercy we find in grace, but grace is a bigger, more all-encompassing thing than mercy. Mercy usually has to go with not getting what I receive or not getting what I deserve. That is absolutely in grace, but the grace is more, and we'll get to that in a second. So mercy is me not doing to somebody else what they deserve, what they have earned. That's mercy. Grace is me not doing to somebody else what they deserve, but instead giving them blessing or favor. So it's taking mercy to a whole nother level. This is why what Jesus did for us was full of graciousness. Because not only did we not get what we deserve from God, but instead we get the Holy Spirit, we get to be made right with God, we get God's favor in everyday life, we get eternal life, and that's the point. So when you're doing this, you must approach this in mercy and in grace toward others. Now, the power of this is the way that it plays out in everyday life. The power of this comes where the rubber meets the road. 
mercy, and grace. How do we do that? I think James actually gives us really, really good advice. In James chapter three, James is beating a drum. He's talking about how the tongue is a ruthless evil. He says all of the, uh, you just said it, it's higher forest ablaze with the tongue, with just a small spark. That's how the tongue is. You can control all of the animals of the world, but you can't control the tongue. You ever see a massive ship like the Titanic that was wrecked by an iceberg, and it's got the small rudder that controls the entire thing, and your body's like that with your tongue. And then in verse 9, he says this, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Think back over your Facebook page. Think back over your Twitter page. Think back over the conversation you had at the restaurant. Think back over what you were saying in the car. Think back over the last time you talked to your spouse. Think back over the last time you talked to your kids. Think back, think back, think back for a minute. Did you control your tongue? Or did you cut another person down made in the image of God? It doesn't matter if you're right and they're wrong. What matters is that they're image bearers of God. And so how you approach them has got to be in a way that honors and shows dignity towards something that deserves honor and dignity. In Matthew chapter 12, which I used last week in my sermon, but Jesus says this in verse seven. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Now, there, I wanna be clear, in case you're well aware of what's going on in Matthew 12, Jesus is not talking about reconciliation, but the wisdom of what he's saying applies to this conversation, In this situation, Jesus is being confronted by these Pharisees who are judging Jesus and judging other people for how they're doing their business. And Jesus says, if you had any idea what God's heart was really like, you would have known that I'm more concerned with mercy than sacrifice. So come all the way back to Matthew chapter five and it just builds on what he already told us. Leave your gift at the altar. Go be reconciled. I'm less concerned with you acting in a certain way or showing up at church on Sunday as I am with you living out the principles of my life in you. Mercy over sacrifice. And the most crazy thing, I'm about to blow your mind, this quote comes from Hosea chapter six, verse six. Do y'all know who Hosea is? Oh, man. I wish that book weren't in there. Just like... Thomas Jefferson used to cut out parts of the Bible that he didn't agree with. I think we ought to just take Hosea out because it'll ruin you. Because Hosea, here's the story of Hosea. God comes to a prophet named Hosea, says, Hosea, here it is. You're gonna go marry a woman. She's not gonna love you. She's not gonna be faithful to you. She's gonna, be, she's gonna represent my people to me and how they act. And you're gonna love her and you're gonna pursue her and you're gonna forgive her and you're gonna care for her and you're gonna keep doing it because that's my love for them. Go. So he does. He takes this woman as his wife and she's constantly leaving him and cheating on him, has kids from other people. He eventually goes into the marketplace and buys his wife back. She's being sold as a slave and the price on her head is shows she has no worth, no dignity. The people who've taken her have abused her, treated her terribly, and he is going. Now what man in his pride would dare take that approach towards his spouse? But God says, that's how much I love you. That's how much I love you. 
And Jesus pulls right out of that book and says, if you had any idea what my heart was really like, I'm more concerned with mercy than sacrifice. The reality for Matt Nickerson, and I'm just gonna guess maybe a couple of you here or at home, is I do not fully appreciate God's heart for reconciliation. I do not fully understand it the way I need to, so God, help me in my unbelief. Help me to see what I can't see, to feel what I can't feel, to know what I can't know, that I might have your heart and your ways. I'm almost done. I just have one more thing I want to show you. And that's this. You can't quit until reconciliation has occurred. You can't quit until reconciliation has occurred. I have been convicted in my heart as God has brought a couple names up. Let me be clear. Paul says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. In other words, there's a whole bunch that's not your problem. But I have a brother that I have tried to be reconciled to, and he basically said no. And I basically hardened my heart and said, fine, it's not my problem then. I've done everything I can do, but as I'm preparing this message, I sense the Lord saying, no, you haven't. Try again. And so I'm gonna find a way to try again. And I don't know what's gonna come of it. But I'm gonna pray for him. I'm gonna pray that God will soften his heart and soften the ground. Matthew chapter five, verse 24. Let's look at it again. First, go and be reconciled to them. The word be reconciled is actually two words in the Greek that mean thoroughly experience change. So you would put those two words together, we say in English, be reconciled, but it literally means to have a change in the relationship as a result of the conversation. So until a change has occurred, reconciliation hasn't occurred. If it takes another conversation and another conversation and another conversation and another conversation, then keep doing it. Why? Because it's worth it. And I'll close with this. Jesus tells an illustration in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is powerful for this. Because Jesus says, if somebody sinned against you, go to your brother and confront them with how they hurt you. Notice what he doesn't say first. Go to somebody else and tell them. Christians, for the last hundred years, have been guilty of taking it to a prayer first. Not a prayer with God, but a prayer group. Hey guys, would you pray for me? I'm having brokenness with so-and-so. And what I just did is I gossiped to them, I slandered them in that group before I did what God told me to do, which is go to them. Now, if I go to them and they don't repent of their sin, then I'm supposed to go to somebody else wise and say, can you help me? Because that person now can show up and I might be wrong. That person can actually say, you know what? I'm sitting here, listen, I came with you, but I think you're the wrong one here. Or listen, they're wrong and you're wrong. Y'all need to get together. But if at that point the person sinned against me and they won't own their stuff, then I go and I get the elders of the church and I get church leadership and they come. That's the seriousness of this. You're like, I don't want the elders up in my business like that. Oh, yes, you do. You do because you want to be reconciled because unity is everything. But then it says if they still won't repent, then you take them to the church. And after that, then you treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. A pagan. <laughs> what? What do we do with pagans and tax collectors? We preach the gospel to them. What is the gospel? 
because of your sin, you are broken before God. You are separated from him and you need to repent and you need to come to Jesus as your savior. Jesus loves you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to heal you, but he refuses to leave you where you are. He wants to be your Lord and your savior. Repent and return to him that you may live and times of refreshing may come. In other words, we never give up. We never surrender. But with each conversation, I get more and more protected by the amount of people coming between us so that you can't continue to hurt me or attack me or abuse me as we go. I don't know what else to do but to jump right into communion. And so as if God has done what we've asked and he's put a name on your heart, I'm gonna ask right now in prayer that this communion time would be about you taking whatever step you need to take to go and be reconciled to them. Let's pray. Father, there's so much more to say, God. I've done my best, I've given you my best. God, would you take this now and wash us clean? Oh God, as we take your bread and as we take your juice, we are eating and drinking your grace and your mercy. Help us to be one as you are one, that the world will look at us and know there's something different about them. If this were easy, everybody would do it. It's not, because it means me swallowing my pride and in mercy and grace, giving to others what I don't feel like they deserve. So God, give us strength, give us courage, give us boldness. Help us to put off work or school or sports or whatever stupid thing we're thinking about right now instead of this. God, let us eat the frog that needs eaten. Help us to be the buffalo and run into the storm and not run away. Help us to be Jesus. God, meet us right now and help us discern your will. In Jesus' name, amen.